Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And action. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to From Lakeshore Drive to Hollywood. I'm your host, Lizzie Coffin. We've been off for a little while, but we're back with new episodes, starting with this week's supersized episode with our guest, film producer Stephen A. Jones. Stephen is one of the best-known independent producers working in Chicago, whose credits include Mad Dog and Glory, The Promotion, Speaking of Sex, Normal Life, Wild Things, and his first feature film, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Stephen also teaches film at DePaul University, is a professional musician, and got a start in the industry directing commercial animation. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation about his fascinating career and the films he's worked on. But I, I wanted to start a little bit in a little bit further back of how you mm-hmm. actually ended up getting to Chicago because I know that you grew up in Brooklyn. Right, right. So, and I came to uh, Chicago when I was seventeen to go to the uh, Institute of Design at IIT. What was it about that school that kind of attracted you to want to attend it? Because there's tons of schools, um, you know, art schools and design schools. Back uh, they were, well. I mean, I mean, yeah, they were, they were the, uh, you know, they were the, uh, not the precursor, the the opposite. They were the remains of the Bauhaus had moved to Chicago and became the Institute of Design, and so it was a, in the design world, I was already in a uh, design program in high school at a place called Brooklyn Technical High School. So for me, um, it seemed like a. Uh, step up to go to uh, the Institute of Design. Um, there weren't a lot of, a lot, there were not a lot of colleges that were better thought of than, than IIT as far as design went. There was a, a Pratt Institute, uh, Rhode Island School of Design, and uh, IIT, those are the ones I considered at any rate. And I was, I could have gone to Pratt Institute, but it would have been basically uh, four more years of the same commute and uh, the same kids in the classes, and I sort of needed a change. And IIT was willing to, uh, um, um, they were doing an outreach trying to get people from other states, and uh, so I was able to uh, come here instead. So when you came to Chicago, and it was mm-hmm. sort of, you know, your first time in this part of the city, and being not from even the area, what first, stuck out to you about the city, about sort of going to school in the city? <laughs> in retrospect, not so much that was good, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, because Chicago in, in 19, when I was there, it was, I got here in 1967, it was uh, an old mayor daily, and uh, the school was on the south side, and essentially uh-huh. was an island, island in, uh, uh, an island in the black community, um, and not particularly welcome and not particularly uh, they didn't have particularly good relations with the with the community down there um 
And on the west side of the school was uh, Bridgeport, which, which was near Daly's neighborhood. And we did not have good relations with those people either. They uh, thought we were dirty hippies and would chase us around. So, <laughs> so the, uh, you know, the school itself and the programs and the people there were wonderful. I met um, people who've been my friends basically for life who were musicians for the most part. Um, I still uh, have dealings with many of them. And um, so that, that part was wonderful. So the friendships I made were the best. That's, that's what kept me here. I, that's why mm-hmm. I never went back to Brooklyn was that I had met some uh, amazing people in, in uh, primarily in the music world, but also in, as we went along in the arts and in theater uh, and film as well. Um, so I just uh, stayed here in the creative world. Now, I, I understand that you kind of had an idea of having almost two careers going at the same time because you were a musician, but you were also studying design with hopes of, you know, actually making that a profession. Was it hard to balance the two, both as a student and once you kind of got into the professional world? Um, well, what happened basically for me was I started out studying uh um, product design. And after about a year and a half of that, I moved over into uh, animation, essentially experimental animation. But um, so when I graduated, I had a degree in design, but I was focused more on animation and the art that went into um, into doing, well, experimental but commercial animation. So um, at the point when I graduated was when a point I started really focusing on being a musician. So mm-hmm. I didn't um, go look for a regular job is the, is the best <laughs> way to put it. I didn't look for a nine-to-five job, so I took the occasional um, animation art job or whatever, but for a while there, I focused primarily on being a musician um, until about um, 1975 or so, uh, even beyond that. I really didn't start... Um, in the film world until about 1976-77. And then I was doing, I started doing commercials. And again, it came through animation. Um, So I worked at a, uh, I ran a a computerized, uh, a computerized Oxbury animation camera for a while. Um, Realized that that I wasn't, going to be cut out for that at all and then I hooked up with an old uh, um, person who had come out an old person but an old friend who'd come out of IIT as well who had a uh, commercial firm and uh, actually two guys who were both doing commercial animation so I was able to um, um, get work because I knew a lot about I knew a lot about cars. I knew a lot about mechanics and mechanical drawing, having, having at this point in time had eight years of design training and drafting and all that stuff. So I was able to do a lot of uh, engineering animation for, for car companies. And um, I sort of fell into becoming an animation director uh, around 1976-77. And uh, I worked with a guy named Thomas Sinnott who had come out of IIT as well, and he had a company called Sinnott and Associates. So after a while, um, I'd done a bunch of freelance stuff. I worked with a guy named George Eastman as well, who was another classmate. Uh, but finally, I got a position at Sinnott and Associates where I became their director of animation. And that um, 
in the next for the next twelve years, basically, I directed um, TV commercials. I directed Captain Crunch commercials and McDonald's <laughs> and uh, just yeah, I mean, lots and lots of commercials. But I was also able to continue to play in bands and rehearse and record. Um, and so that's what I did. And then ultimately, it wasn't just two careers, it was three, because we <laughs> start, I started in the movie business. There was a point in time where I was uh, commuting to, to the West Coast to do our second movie called The Borrower. And at the same uh-huh. time, I was coming back and rehearsing in a band and playing gigs and doing commercials also during the day. <laughs> so I actually had three things going for a while. I, I, it makes me tired now just to think about it. But in those days, it was just a lot of fun, and a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on. So the um, transition from Captain Crunch commercial animation director mm-hmm. to things like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is a big, mm-hmm. you know, gap. <laughs> I'm wondering yeah, how it, how did you even think like, oh, maybe I want to also try my hand at producing features. It's a it's a funny story in a lot of ways. So when I, as I said, when I first came to Chicago, I went to the Institute of Design and I went and I went, well, or IIT in general, and I ran into a few different people. Um, a guy named James Young, who's James J Y Young, who's the uh, lead guitar player, one of the lead guitar players in the band Sticks. I mean, to this day, he still mm-hmm. plays with them. And a guy named Paul Petraeus. They were musicians, but they would talk about their old neighborhood where they would play with, with a bunch of people. And uh, one of them was a guy named John McNaughton. So basically for 15 years or so, I would hear tales about this guy, John McNaughton, but I never met him. Um, and then at some point, uh, John McNaughton got a job where he needed to get a little couple of little pieces of animation done to, for some uh, documentary films he was doing. And we met up, and I said, hey, I've known these guys, you know, since I was a teenager. And he goes, yeah, well, I used to play, play in bands with all those guys. I know all those guys. So we, we had this history, but we didn't even know it. <laughs> um, and he's the one who, who got the money to, to make Henry Portrait a Serial Killer. But he had, um, I, I at this point had, I don't know, 12, 14 years of finishing commercials and knowing how to do the sound and the editing and and what constituted a quality finished product. I mean, it's as simple as that. I've been doing it day in, day out. So it, that part of it was very easy for me. Uh, and I'd worked with a company, uh, organic theater company and done some productions with them and knew a bunch mm-hmm. of their, well, I knew their whole organic theater company. And I say Stuart Gordon, Tom Tolls, uh, Richard Fire, And I had a friendship with all of them and, and, uh, so when John McNaughton said, well, you know, I want to make a movie about this Henry Lee Lucas guy, I said, well, let me, I'll find you a writer. So I found Richard Fire, and since I knew him, and said, here's a guy I think might be able to do it. And so Richard said he would write the movie along with John. And then my editor at the Senate and Associates was a, well, the assistant editor was a woman named Elena Maganini. And I asked her if she wanted to uh, be the editor on this movie, and she said yes. And in the commercial world, especially when you're young, somebody offers you a feature film and just go, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> so, so she did it. And then our cinematographer backed out and I just went into the office, you know, because we were, I was in a commercial firm and said to the producer there, well, you know, you got any 
good DPs, and they said, well, call this guy up. So I found this guy, Charlie Lieberman. Um, and then I had a friend who did conceptual sketches for the art department, and then they started bringing in actors, and a lot of them came out of the organic. There were people I knew. So when we got to the other end of the picture, we got it cut, and then we were putting music on it. Well, I brought in my musician buddies to do the soundtrack. Um, and then art directed the titles and all of that stuff and helped design the poster. And so by the time we were done, I looked at John, I said, well, you know, I have all these credits, you know, post-production supervisor and composer and blah, 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 blah. And I found all these people and that's probably a producer credit. And he says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, so I became, I sort of backed into the role of being a producer on Henry Portrait of the Serial Killer. And in some ways it, it was a, strange jog in my career path because it, up, up till that point I was a director, the director mm -hmm. of the um, But I believe that my abilities as a, or not abilities, experience as a director where it was something that allowed John and I to make a, you know, a better film than we would have otherwise. When you started working on it, because I know that the movie got kind of held up and then it had all the um, issues getting releasing, when exactly did you film the movie? When did we film it? Yeah, we filmed in uh, 1985-1986. So, and it didn't really get a release till 1989. So there had already been, you know, films that were being made in the city and you know, they'd finally opened... Um, opened up the city back to having film crews and things in there, but because this was a, I guess what would now be considered like a micro-budget movie, was yeah. it hard to get things like, you know, permissions and permits and actually get well, the movie we made? Just didn't do a, we just didn't do a lot yeah. of that. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a, we had a day or two where we had permits when we shot downtown, and, and but everything else was, you know, you, you when you're making a movie that little, you hire a DP that has his own gear, and uh, you, you, your crew is cobbled together, so you, might, you don't have necessarily have the same people every day. You're, you're switching people in and out. And the philosophy, uh, there was a woman named Lisa Deadman who was the other producer, who was essentially the line producer. Um, and the philosophy was we would pay everybody something. Mm -hmm. So you never were working for zero. You know, everybody made a little tiny something. Um, and that I think is, was crucial. I mean, to this day, I mean, I teach now at DePaul University and I teach producing there and, and you see these students trying to put their projects together. And a lot of times, you know, my lectures to them is make sure you feed everybody first and foremost, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's like they say that army, it moves on its stomach. And, <laughs> and. If, if you can pay everybody a little bit, they just feel a little better about coming to work and a little less likely to say, well, I'm not going, and they're not paying me anything. Mm -hmm. I feel a little more responsible. So in Henry, it was a good example of that. For um, a lot of your crew, was it the first time that they'd ever um, made a movie, even if it wasn't their first professional experience? It was a uh, lot of the first time? Well, Elena, it was her first movie our editor, uh, she's since gone on to cut, well, she cut seven of our movies, John and my picture. She's probably cut eight. And then she's done lots of other work and lots of television. She won the uh, Emmy for cutting the pilot of Dexter. So she went from having zero 
a live action cutting experience to, you know, being very successful in her field. Charlie Lieberman had one feature under his belt at that point, I believe. Uh, Michael Rooker hadn't been in any movies. I think Tommy <laughs> Tolles had been in one or two. Um, you know, John hadn't directed any any live action films at all. It was certainly his debut. So for the most part, we were pretty inexperienced. I would have to mm-hmm. say, and 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 the, the saving grace was that we just didn't know what not to do. <laughs> and I think all along the, all along the way, um, we just did what we could and what instinctually felt good and or different or whatever, and we ended up with this movie that you know scandalized people and made them ill and made them uh, have to you know started discussions about violence in film and and. You know, compared to what's on television now, Henry's relatively mild. Uh, but in those days, it was just considered so incredibly shocking that uh, that we got an X rating. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember being pretty disturbed by the movie. I mean, in a good way, because I think it's supposed to be kind of disturbing. But, I mean, I, I remember the first time I saw that movie being really disturbed by the yeah. violence. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's definitely disturbing. I... I, I tell a story a lot about going to the Locarno Film Festival when uh, Henry was invited to be shown there. And, and that would have been about, been about 1990. And I went to Locarno because John couldn't go, so I was just one as a representative of the film. And I stood up in, an, in front of an audience after the film was shown, and, and it was bedlam. People were yelling at me in uh, Italian, German, uh, <laughs> Dutch. I mean, it was just... It was just crazy, and and the the one thing that happened was they somebody said, "How dare you show this movie here?" And I said, "Well, first of all, I was invited. <laughs> and second of all, let me let me ask you a question. Did you see that movie Total Recall?" And they, yeah. I said, "What do you think about that?" Well, and they said, well, "Why are you asking?" That? I said, "Well, they killed three, four hundred people in that movie easily. They must gun them down like you know paper dolls." I said, and, and then you probably went out and had a cheeseburger. And they were like, well, yeah, but that's entertainment. I said, well, it's not supposed to be entertainment. You're supposed mm-hmm. to feel bad when somebody gets killed. And that's, that's what we did, you know. You're not supposed to feel good about it. It's not supposed to be just happy times. Um, and the next day, I was, you know, I had a translator who'd stand on stage with me because the people asking questions in all of these other languages. And the next day, the translator said, you know, they, they were televising that that discussion you had with the audience. And I said, well, how did we look? And he said, we were sweating. (laughs) So so it was pretty, it was, and it was, you know, I tell the students at DePaul now that it was the saw of this day. I mean, that movie saw, which everybody was so shocked by. I said, well, we had uh, probably even a more severe impact than, than saw did. And I, and I have to say that it was not by um, design. Mm-hmm. You know, our design was to do the best we possibly could with our limited resources. And I used to tell people if it had been, if they'd asked us to do, if you know, if they hadn't asked John to do a horror movie, if they'd asked him to do a movie about daycare, we would have tried to do the best version of that we could. Um, it wasn't specifically trying to shock people. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, when. When John brought the idea to you, was it pitched mm-hmm. as it was going to be the story of, you know, the serial killer, this sort of horror movie, but look at it from 
the realistic perspective, or was that approach something that you kind of realized was how he was directing the movie um, um, as he went I along? Think, I think uh, initially the idea was it was going to be about the actual Henry Lee Lucas, um, mm-hmm. but Henry Lee Lucas, as we found out as we went along, was, was creating a myth about himself. He had he had uh, confessed to when we started to make the movie. He confessed to 360 some odd murders, and then it turned out that he was doing that to solve everybody's cold cases all around the country because he would get special treatment in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so th- there was no doing a real movie about Henry Lee Lucas anyway, even if we could have afforded it. Um, and John's initial choice for cinematographer was a guy named Jean de Zagonzac, who was a documentary cinematographer. So I think we sort of had that approach in mind. Um, and then Richard Fire came from the theater. So his um, contributions, I mean, are, you know, are the screenplay along with John, but Richard also um, gave the actors instructions to go home and create backstories for themselves. Mm-hmm. So they all sort of came in and knew who they were. So it, it, it caused it to, between that and the fact that we had no money, so we had to really shoot things in a run-and-gun fashion, it just ended up being this sort of documentary-feeling look at the at the world. And it is incredibly effective. <laughs> I have to yeah, say, yeah, it, 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 it is it, really... It, it worked out very well. It was, it was um, you know... I, I'm sure John uh, John doesn't doesn't say it the same way I do, but it was it was a pleasant surprise in a way to to have it. Well, no, I'm sure it was a surprise, pleasant surprise thing to to have it be that successful and that um, well regarded. I think is the thing. I mean, it could have gone either way. It could have been this is just pure trash, which is what many people said. But we've got enough people. Um, Errol Morris, the director, documentary director, mostly, mm-hmm. um, was the guest director at the Telluride Film Festival in, I believe it was 89. And he got to pick three movies to be shown. So, meanwhile, while they're showing Roger and me, Michael Moore's first movie, and they're showing My Left Foot, uh, they're showing Henry Porter, the serial killer. And, and if you have that kind of a forum uh, or a place to present your picture, and it's being considered along with these other um, serious enterprises. And Errol Morris is saying, you need to watch this film. This is a work of art, which is not something I would have claimed or would claim. <laughs> it, it, it made people uh, pay attention. And we still had, you know, people get up and run out. You know, we sat there at first thinking uh, the whole audience is going to just run out the door. And, but a, and a good chunk of them did, maybe, you know, 20% of them. But the rest stayed, and they considered it, they sat back and considered it as, as a, you know, a, a movie, something they need mm-hmm. to watch, not just not just an exploitation film. And uh, that's sort of, between that and um, the critics of the Village Voice, um, at the time, called it the best film of the year, and, and we got all of, the, on all of these 10 best lists. So it went from being this little ragtag, piece of weirdness to being, you know, considered as a, uh, you know, something special. Um, I, I definitely want to go back to the, um, the release of the movie because it's 
seems like that whole thing was particularly kind of crazy for you guys. But I wanted to ask how you found Thomas and Michael. Were they part of sort of the theater community that you were, um, you know, fr- friendly with? Right. Well, yeah, for sure. I knew Tom, I had known Tom Tolls for, let's see, at that point in time, I'd known Tom Tolls almost 10 years. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Rooker, though, our, the guy that was doing our special effects makeup, um, he, he, he found Rooker and just brought him in. I remember being in, I was at, at the animation studio that day when I got a phone call saying, Henry just walked in. And, and Rooker came in in that Carhartt coat. Now, you know, now all the hipsters wear Carhartts, but in those days, carpenters wore Carhartts, construction okay. guys. And he came walking into the audition in that Carhartt coat. John called me up right away and said, oh, we've got the guy. He's here. Um, but Tommy and um, who else? was? Um, well, Richard, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on, on all, my, all my buddies' names. Rick Paul. <laughs> was our production designer, and he came out of the theater, out of the organic. Um, uh, Lily Monkus, who's a lady to me, uh, beauty parlor, she came out of the organic. Um, I can't remember where Tracy Arnold came from, but I'm sure it was out of theater as well. Yeah. So it was, it, it, a lot of it came from my having been wandering around in that world as well in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the movie gets you know, produced and mm-hmm. you got, and you have, you know, a full movie now made. And I understand that the production company was sort of scared to even try and release it because yeah, when they, did you get the X rating? <laughs> yeah, they, they felt that it was, it was just, um, what they said at the time, it was too arty for the gore crowd and it was too gory for the art crowd. That was the way they <laughs> felt about it. So they, they just put it on the shelf. Um, and we, there was a guy who worked for them who would circulate. We had these very uh, high-end video cassettes made. Um, they wouldn't even make that kind of video cassette anymore because they were, they were made in real time, so they were costly. But they were MPI Home Video, who, who, who were the people that put the money up for the film, um, search, were, had this guy in the mail room and John would call him up and go, Hey, would you send this guy a copy? Would you send this guy a copy? So we were circulating these very pristine copies of the movie uh, around the country. So it's sort of like, it's the equivalent of something going viral today. Uh-huh. Uh, we actually heard at some point that uh, somebody said, Hey, I saw your movie for sale in Washington, DC. And we're like, well, that's kind of amazing since it's not out and it's not released and nobody <laughs> could possibly be selling it. Well, someone was, was selling it already. So when so with sort of that proof, and I'm assuming that the festivals also once festivals started to want it, was when yeah. the production company said, "Yeah, we'll give you a release," and then you got held up with the MPA and the rating system because they said that it was going to be an X rating. Yeah, I think it got held up with the rating systems when they tried to sell it to. Uh, um, a, a distribution company like Vestron, or one of there were a bunch of big video distribution companies in those days, uh, and that's when they had to submit it for rating, and that's when they got the X. Um, well, and, all this is while all this is happening. Are you still sort of in the film production area of your career, or 
had you gone back to mostly working in animation and commercials? Oh uh, no! Once, once, uh, once we, <laughs> once Henry came out and got a bunch of reviews, we got another movie fairly quickly uh, called The Borrower. Mm-hmm. So um, that one, that one, we were we were in production on, and that's another whole disaster. That's another whole <laughs> crazy film story. It's, uh, Henry, Henry, not being qu- quite as disaster, but The Borrower um, from a Financial and production viewpoint, the company was going out of business while we were making the borrower, and they um, stole a third of our budget and then went out of business while we were in the midst of making the movie. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah, it was just nuts. And so by the time the borrower was completed, um, Henry had come out and had gotten a lot of acclaim and I went to the anime, the, the Tom Sinnott who owned the animation company where I worked as a director and said, you know, I'm, I'm moving over into the movie business. He said, yeah, well, as soon as I saw you guys film on Cisco and Ebert, I knew you're, you know, I knew I was going to lose you. <laughs> what happens. So, so right around there, 1990 is when uh, I left the, uh, the animation business. Did the borrowers ever, come out theatrically? The, uh, the borrow, yeah, the bar, you got to say the borrower, because the borrowers are those little people with all oh, the, yeah. and, and, and <laughs> all the time people go, oh, you did, the, you did the borrowers? And I go, well, no, it was a different one. The one we did, the guy's, you know, his head explodes and he can rips people's heads off the whole rest of the movie and puts them on his <laughs> alien body. Um, so that, what was that question again, though? Oh, no. Did it come out theatrically or... Because of the, so the borrower, as, yeah, as we as we completed it, um, and the the company disappeared, so we didn't even have any um, buddy to answer to anymore, except for the completion bond company, which is actually film finances. It wasn't a complete, completion bond company, but uh, and there's a thing called a completion bond, which means when you run into difficulty um, on your production, this company steps in to make sure that the film gets finished. So that's why they call it a completion bond. Uh, it's not an insurance company. It means you, we, they have, they go to the investor and say, "Here's your film. We've got the film finished for you." Mm-hmm. Uh, so we ended up having to work with the completion bond company. They were not very nice to us. <laughs> <laughs> they, they basically were saying, "We're not paying any of your people." And I had to say, "You have to pay all these people. They're friends of mine. They've worked for me in the commercial world. We have agreements with all of them." And they said, "No, nah, we don't think we'll do that." And I said, well, you have to, because I'm working on the, the visual effects here and, and some model sequences and animation and stuff and the titles, and I'm, I have the negative. And, I'll, you know, and I, literally, I told them I would take the negative and throw it in the lake. So they had a, I, got, I got a call from a, a mob attorney at one point, and uh, they told me I'd never work in the business again and all of, that, all of those threats. And I finally got very worried and went to my attorney and he said, well, you know, they, the way they settle these things is you give, if you worked on it and I said, yes, I did. He said, well, you go to the sheriff and you take, you bring the film elements to the sheriff and then no, it'll go through the courts and ultimately they'll figure it out. So I called the bond company up and said, Hey, I've got a solution to our problem. You know, the fact that you don't want to pay any of these people and uh, by Illinois law, I can take this to the sheriff and, 
And in a year or so, they'll figure out what to do. And the next day, they started paying everybody. Nice. Because they didn't want to lose the film. Um, but getting to that point was very stressful. Uh, so, it, so it got completed, but then because it was an asset in a bankruptcy case, uh, uh, the company, Atlantic Entertainment, had gone out of business, and one of their assets was this, was the, um, I would imagine it was the copyright on the film, since the financier probably owned the physical aspect of it. It ended up sort of in an auction getting sold to Canon Films, and it never got a real theatrical release. When, when all this is going on, and you're having trouble with the production company, and the production company goes bankrupt, was there a point mm-hmm. where you were thinking... I, I don't know if we can keep going. You know, was it a point where it's just hard to kind of get through the work day of, for a movie that was sort of starting to have so much trouble in the production? Uh, not, you know, in thinking back, not really. The making of them was so um, consuming, all-consuming and so interesting and exciting and, and uh for the most part, fun, um, and that for me, um, I'm what they call a creative producer. So for me, it's the it's what it looks and feels and smells and sounds and tastes like, as opposed to the, the business side, uh, which which has been to my detriment at points because I'm much more concerned with the with what you finally see on the screen. Right. Um, so it was since we were just starting and exploring this world and seeing what we could do and seeing how, how this all came together and, you know, going in and putting a piece of music on or a sound effect on and, or changing the edit or and working. It, it was all so uh, great an experience that, that there wasn't any giving up at, at that point at all. There was no thought of it. So when you've had trouble with the borrower but Henry mm-hmm. Portrait of a Serial Killer did so well. When did um, something like Normal Life come about, um, become an opportunity? Because that was a little bit of a higher, you know, kind of a next step. Well, actually, actually, the in the in the hierarchy, uh, what happened next was uh, Mad Dog and Glory. Really? Okay. And yeah, and so what happened basically was somebody showed. There's a longer version of the story where where. Somebody tried to get Martin Scorsese to see Henry, and he wouldn't watch it, but then somebody else came to him and said, you should watch it, and Martin Scorsese saw Henry, and he and he, he told us, well, you know, I have this little, well, he told, he, yeah, he did tell us this. I had this little script that was kind of sweet, which is kind of odd for Marty, because Meadow and Glory, you could say there's a sweet part to it, but also somebody gets their brains blown out in the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, he said, so I had this sweet little script, and I figured I would put it with these crazy guys that did this serial killer movie and see what we get. Uh, so he, he initially we were going to do it, it was supposed to be a small picture. It was supposed to be, it still would have been big for us because the borrower was like $2 million bucks, And it was going to be like a 7 or $8 million movie, and we were going to cast locally. So we were going to cast Malkovich and um, Joey Mantegna, and we were going to you know get call from the Chicago theater groups, the best actors in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and make this little movie, and we would have been looking really good. But Martin, Marty said, uh, well, let me give this to Bob. And, you know, for a moment we were blank, and then it was like, Bob. Oh, okay, Robert De Niro, okay. And, and 
see what he wants to do. So he, he, he called back and said, basically, well, Bob wants to do the movie. Uh, he can't decide which role he wants to play, but he wants to do the movie. So we'll have a reading in New York, um, and Bob will read both roles. So in the morning, they did a table read, and in the morning, uh, Stanley Tucci read the part that went ultimately, ultimately to Bill Murray, and Bob read the part of the, you know, the, the milk toast little cop character. Um, and by the time he got done doing that, he knew he wanted to play the cop, but they had the second part in the afternoon where Bob was going to be the gangster and Christopher Walken of all people played the cop. <laughs> uh, and it just turned into a big joke. It turned into everybody was laughing their butts off. You know? Right. Um, so, so Martin said, yeah, Marty said, yeah, so Bob is going to do the movie. Um, and you know, you have to find a, uh, you have to find a, a gangster character. But in the midst of all that, I actually wasn't in the midst of all that. So we, we, we moved to New York because it was set in New York City. And, and we set up production offices and um, started looking for the gangster character. And uh, we couldn't find the right guy. And then finally, uh, the, uh, Universal Pictures came and said, look, we're, we're putting you guys on hiatus because uh, Bob and Marty have to go do an, another movie. That's through Cape Fear. <laughs> so we had moved to New York. I had I had gone down to my last five hundred dollars to my name, um, and all of a sudden we were out of work. And at that point, um, John said, "Well, since we're sitting here in New York, why don't we go talk to this guy that sent us a uh, you know a fan letter?" I said, "Who's that? Is this guy Eric Bogosian?" Yeah. So we met, met Eric was doing a show called Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, a one man show, and to make a long story short, we ended up uh, doing the film version of that. Uh, with the good news being, since it was a live production, the um, actual filming only took a week because it was just a guy on stage, and we, you know, we were we figured out a method of shooting it, and and so we shot Sex Drugs Rock and Roll, and then we came back to Chicago and got it cut and and put together and when we got it all finished it was um mad dog and glory started back up again so it filled in that six-month hole that we had while we were waiting for marty to uh get and bob to get done with cape fear um so actually our third movie was sex drugs rock and roll our fourth movie was mad dog and glory um and bob is the one who, bob is the one who suggested bill murray as the gangster with eric um and that fan letter, do you happen to remember what kind of he said in the letter that made you go like, oh, we should go meet him? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I, 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 John, I didn't even know about the letter because uh-huh. it went to John. And um, and he said, you know, this guy, well, I'm not this guy. We knew who Eric was, and, you know, especially spending time in New York City in those days. He was the guy. Um, he'd written talk radio. And then made a movie out of that, you know, Oliver Stone had. So he, so we knew who he was. So when, you know, John said, you know, this guy would like to hang out. So we went, we went to actually went to a bar to meet him. And then it turned out he wasn't a drinker, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so that's how much we knew about old Eric. Not very much. Um, But he just said he was a big fan. It would be great to talk to us. And he didn't come with the intent of, of having us do do the movie of the show. He had somebody else already lined up. 
And we, he said, yeah, I'm doing a movie in my show. And we were both like, uh, we'd be interested in doing that. And he says, no, I already got, I can't remember who it was, some, but some, uh, some other um, director cinematographer. And we said, well, if that doesn't work out, just let us know. And um, in, in a couple of weeks, we got a call saying, you know what? What, what, how do you guys imagine us presenting this as a movie? And, you know, I had come out of the commercial world, so I was, it was, for me it was very easy to say, he's got 11 characters, we'll do it in 11 different visual styles. And they went, okay, sold. And, <laughs> and we, were able, we were able to do the movie. That's, that's convenient that you guys had that kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was, really a, it was really a good stroke of luck, because like I said, I, was, I would have been destitute if, <laughs> if that hadn't come along. When you were in New York working on working on pre-production for Mad Dog and Glory, mm-hmm. what were your impressions of the New York industry versus when you were filmmaking in Chicago? I mean, was it a totally different environment for you guys? You know, it, yeah, and in some ways it wasn't. In some ways since the only film we'd done in Chicago was Henry and it was run and gun. Um, the, the borrower, we started in Chicago, but we only started prep. And then, then it got moved to Los Angeles because since the company was going out of business, they wanted to at least have the appearances of still being in business. So they moved the whole, that whole movie to LA. So we'd only done this little tiny, uh, under the radar movie here. So we didn't really have much of an experience with the, movie business here i mean in new york all we did was the prep part of it and then um they pulled the plug on it so we didn't really get much experience with the new york film world at that point and then the movie came back to chicago to be to get made so until we did mad dog and glory here which we shot in chicago we didn't really have a feeling for what the chicago film world was like um but then we were pleasantly surprised (laughs) <laughs> like how good how good our people were. When um, Robert De Niro said, like, you should hire Bill Murray for this part, which is a, it's right. a weird it's a weird casting choice <laughs> if yeah. you think about it. But uh, first of all, did you know Bill Murray at all? Because you're you know from no, the same not, area. Not at all. It's a it's you know it's funny when it's so long ago that these things sort of in my own mind and, and in John's mind they become mythology. And, and probably different. We probably have two different versions of these stories. But uh, I can remember sitting in the office, and you know, we each had a, a big desk with a phone, and, and or not a big desk, a desk with a phone. And he <laughs> looks, John looks across from his phone at me and, say, and puts his hand over the mouthpiece and says, "Bob's suggesting Bill Murray." Now I had seen uh, The Razor's Edge, where he's the only straight role I think he had ever played. Um, at that point that I knew of anyway. And, and I looked at John, I said, yeah, he could do it. He did the Razor Jazz. And, and John said to Bob, yeah, yeah, he could do it. <laughs> and uh, the studio said, no, he can't. We're not paying him. Cause he gets, he, he would make, he was making a lot of money in those days. And he still does, but his quote was very high. Um, and they kept saying, no, 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 you have to get somebody different. But ultimately everybody, prevailed on them to hire Bill and they, and, but they just didn't pay him his normal rate. Um, and the one thing I can say about, and they, Bill and Bob were friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing I can say is at the very end, we screened the first time we screened Mad Dog and Glory was at De Niro's theater in Tribeca in his, in his screening room. 
think that was the first time. Oh no, I, or maybe or it was at the premiere screening in New York City, which was a bigger theater. And Bill Murray sat in the row in front of us, and when the movie stopped, ended, he climbed over the seats and started kissing John. <laughs> So then we knew that Bill Murray was going to be a friend of ours, at least for the, in in the short term. And and we've we've done three movies with him now, and we're we're attempting to do a fourth. Were you guys friendly on set, or was that sort of you know a little bit apprehensive apprehensive because you know you didn't know each other yet? Oh uh, no, there was no apprehension. There, uh, I mean, yeah. and and because Bill didn't work the whole show. He came in for a little bit, a couple of weeks, and then he went away and then came back for a couple of weeks. And we were there the whole time with Bob and with Uma and, you know, with Marty as our boss. There, there was no, uh, there was no real, you know, John might feel a little, might have a different answer to that. There's no real apprehension. My, I mean, for example, um, they were, they were movie stars. And John and I had made these two little tiny movies plus uh, Six Drugs Rock Holders, so three little tiny movies. And we'd, we'd, it'd be time to shoot, and we'd go, and, and Bob and Bill wouldn't be there. They'd be in their trailers. And time would be going by, and, and, and it was getting upsetting to us. But we, were, we <laughs> having not been in the Hollywood world, you know, we, we, we went up to, two things happened. One is we went up to Bob's, a uh, person that does his hair and makeup, he has his own person. She sits in front of his trailer. And very nice person, Elona. I don't know if she's still with him or not. And and she def- she yeah, she might not be because she was older. But we would see Elona and we would and she goes, What's wrong with you guys? And I said, Well, you know, you know, this is our our big our big chance is to make this movie. You know, we've got these famous people and we've got Martin Scorsese as our as our sort of our boss and, and this is our big chance, and Bob's not coming out of his trailer. You know, he's he's taking his time coming out, and it's just freaking us out. We don't know what to do. And the next day, and from then on, Bob came out of his trailer on time. Wow. <laughs> and Bill, on the other hand, <laughs> he'd be in his trailer, and he's not coming out, and the whole crew standing there, and finally um, Barbara Defina, who's who was Scorsese's uh, producer. And and wife at this point comes over to me and says he's not coming out of his trailer. And we've got a hundred and some odd people standing around at Lincoln and Belden, uh, waiting to shoot, and Bill's not coming out. And I don't know, you know, if he had a person. I don't know what his issues were, but he wasn't coming out to work. So you know, time was going by, and we're paying union wages to a hundred some odd people. And she's looking at me, and I'm like, okay. So I walk over, and I just bang on the door, and he opens it up, and he goes. Oh, we must really be late if they're sending you. <laughs> and then he came out and did his work, you know. I mean, we, we we weren't that intimidated because we had we just had a job to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and overall, they 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 treated and it's one of the magical things about the movie business is they the actors will treat the director with respect if the director appears to know what they're doing and has you know and is. So through rehearsals and, and prep, you know, we were able to present ourselves as being guys who had an idea. And we, we had storyboarded Mad Dog and Glory. We had storyboarded normally, you know, people do a little storyboard with images throughout the movie. We storyboarded every single cut. So when it went from close-up to other close-up to wide shot, 
every single cut was storyboarded, which meant we were really, really prepared. We knew exactly what was happening in every single frame of that movie a year before we shot it. And that, you know, the actors go, oh, okay, these, we're, in, we're in good hands. Yeah. These guys have prepared. We're not out here winging it, you know. And that makes a huge difference in their attitude. Because when you had done Henry, you had sort of backed into the production um, business because in the role of producer, because you had done all these other things and yeah. um, sort of what needed to get done, you got yeah, done. Yeah, I mean, as a matter, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but as a matter of fact, I, I because while they were shooting Henry, I was doing a $300,000 Captain Crunch campaign. <laughs> so I didn't even show up on set. It's the only only movie we've done where I wasn't on set. All the other movies I'm on set from the first day to the last. And, and you know, I start when the script first shows up and go all the way through to where you can see it on the screen. Henry's the only one where I didn't go to the actual, actual shooting of it, except for, you know, a couple of visits. Um, but I'm sorry, I... I interrupted well, um, your but when you start working on a film like this and your title from the very beginning is, and you're the producer, you know, John's the director, right. you're the producer. Right. Was it hard to figure out what everyone else knew a producer did? Because, you know, you have producers who are all business, who, you know, you said that you're a creative producer. Right. Was it hard to sort of establish what type of producer you were going to be within this studio system that now has oh, it was, it, more say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very, it was very difficult. As a matter of fact, so when we did, you know, and because we were creative partners, so like I said, we, you know, we Henry we put together our whole, the whole putting together of that movie was John and myself, um, and Lisa Deadman as the line producer. The borrower, we sat and we storyboarded that movie twice, all the way through it, because we needed, it's a long story, but we, we did it once, and then they thought the movie was too expensive, and, and we had it rewritten by Richard Fire, and we storyboarded the whole movie again. So we were very, very much focused on the creative aspects of that movie, and since it had uh, visual effects in it, and um, models, and animation, all that sort of stuff, I was very uh, involved, you know, on a on a really on a gut, you know, basic level of, of making that that movie. We got to when we got to Mad Dog and and uh, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll again. I, like I said, I had this commercial idea of here's how we're gonna here's how we're gonna make this movie work. We're gonna have eleven different shooting styles for eleven different characters. So when we went to do Mad Dog and Glory, Scorsese took us aside and said, okay, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't, two guys don't work as director, which we've never claimed to be two directors. And Steve, you're going to be associate producer. And I was like, well, you know, that's, I'm John's producing partner. And that's really, you know, that's how it is. Um, but then when they delayed us, they moved my title up to co-producer, which I don't even know exactly what that means. But <laughs> the, the point being that, yes, it was difficult and, almost every project I've had to explain myself and what role I have. And I, I have to continue to say, look, I don't find the money. Mm -hmm. I spend it. 
That's, that's sort of my job. And I'm not the dollars and cents line producer guy. I'm the guy that's saying to John, yeah, well, you know, don't, don't you remember our discussion? We were going to have this be a little more angry or we were going to have them do this. Or don't you, you know, and, and ultimately I started becoming the second unit director so that we could get more work done. If it didn't involve the principal cast and if, if it didn't involve dialogue, I could go out and shoot it because we knew that it would fit because we both have the same mindset. We've been working together forever. Uh, Harvest is a perfect example. I would right. go out and I would shoot a couple of days of, of the, the little girl on the school bus and the bus driving up, all of the little bits and pieces that were going to be time-consuming while John worked on the, the, the dramatic part of it. We did that in um, Speaking of Sex. We did that in uh, Wild Things. I did a director of our second unit. Uh, it's just, I, I'm a creative guy. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to learn what all that other stuff was. The, the, all the lines in the budget, there were positions. I had no idea what these people did or what they cost. Or you could say, well, what is it? what's the swing gang? And I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it took me, I, I sort of, so what I backed into was the business end of producing. Um, because the rest of it, you know, making of the films is the part that I knew. With Mad Dog and Glory, it ended up filming, um, you ended up filming primarily in Chicago? Totally in Chicago. So how did that happen, that it moved from New York to Chicago? Was it just you were there and you said, we want to film in Chicago? Or was it just a change of um, the story once um, you had been in the pre-production period for a while? Uh, there was labor unrest, basically. <laughs> The, um, the unions in New York, hang on one second. The unions in New York, the, the studios felt that the unions were being, um, uh, were overcharging. So all of the, all of the studios came to agreement to not shoot any movies in New York City. Uh-huh. And so that, in doing so, that meant that we couldn't shoot Mad Dog and Glory. We had, you know, the, the resources and the actors, and we couldn't make the movie. So they said, well, you, you, can you shoot it in Chicago? We were like, yippee, you know. So we had the writer, Richard Price, uh, come out here, and we took him around Chicago so that he could, he could infuse the script with, with, you know, elements of Chicago so that it would, it would function. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was great for us. Needless to say, you, got, you know you, these movies. You're working 14, 15 hours to be able to go home and sleep in your own bed is really a, a good thing. Was it? What was it like finding? You know, you had found all these people who were doing you know crew and acting who hadn't had a lot of experience in film or TV work. And when it came to hiring Chicago crew members who maybe had done a little bit more experience or who had, you know, worked on some of the studio films that were being made in the 80s and the early 90s, what was your impression of the Chicago kind of industry world that was being established in the film and TV industry that you were able to pull from? Uh, you know, my, my feelings, and, you know, obviously, so when we did Mad Dog and Glory, we had... Uh, you know, it was our first experience with the, you know, the full-time professional crews, and and it became 
uh, obvious, especially since we'd already worked in Los Angeles on a, you know, low budget picture where we were getting for the most part, um, not the highest echelon of, of technicians. Let's just say that. I mean, out there, the last couple of weeks of production, the crew would have them would be missing because they were on no face or pay phones. They were on the phones trying to get their next job. It was much more of a people punching the clock to make the movies when you're working on a low budget picture, I have to say. Mm-hmm. So here, here you could have a conversation about literature with your grip and about <laughs> film history with your grip or your, or your electric career. They were very, very dedicated filmmakers up and down the line. Um, and they, because we were from Chicago, and this is true to this day, they would go the extra mile for it. I and mean, normal life is a perfect example of that, where these guys, they were just the best people you could possibly have working for you. Um, and every one of them was committed to making the best movie possible, you know, with, with very small, very, you know, few resources. Um, I have to say, Normal Life is one of those movies where it's like, you know, it, it came to my attention like embarrassingly late, but um, mm-hmm. I loved it. In you know, it's really disturbing, and it's you know, I think Ashley Judd's performance is kind of amazing in it. But oh, yeah, how did astounding. that? How did that movie even kind of come about? Because it feels yeah, it's- very different from. It doesn't feel like it's a logical leap from Henry to Mad Dog. <laughs> we haven't made any that. logic. We've yeah. not made one logical leap in our career. I will say that first. Uh, you know, when people ask me which is my of the movies I've done, uh, which is my favorite, I say Normal Life. Um, yeah. And there, there, for a lot of reasons. One is we were making Mad Dog and Glory. And since Normal Life is based on a true story, the first half of the story happened where there's a big shootout and the woman who ended up being played by Ashley Judd, she died in the big shootout. So that made the news and it turned out they had captured this this bank robber. Um, Although they they were having a difficult time thinking of how to convict him because they hadn't caught him in the act. But anyway, so I had read about this and, and I said to John, look at this story. Look at this. This is just crazy. And then we were in the, it was a Chicago Tribune magazine article about her getting killed and her husband was a bank robber and he was called the Bearded Bandit, blah, blah, blah. We get to New York and when you had, they, they moved us to New York to edit, finish editing Mad Dog and Glory. And I look in the New York Times and, you know, six months later, the, the husband dies in a shootout downtown with the police or, or escaping. From, I'm sorry, he's, he's escaping from a federal from the federal building downtown and he, he dies in a shootout with the, with the security guy. And I go to John, look at this. You know, this has just gotten even crazier. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's make a movie out of this. So I try to buy the rights to the article. There's a woman named Nina Burley. She'd written an article about it in People Magazine. So I'm mm-hmm. trying to chase down the rights and I'm getting stonewalled everywhere. I cannot get the rights to it. And so I give up. And we get a screenplay sent to us and I'm, I'm reading the first few pages in the office and I go, wait a minute, this is the same story. So we go, yes, we want to make this movie. We go out, we meet the people who, who own the screenplay. We agree to make the movie. And, but, but here's, it's the one other than Henry. It's the one movie where we had the idea we wanted to make this movie. 
you know, mm-hmm. it's our idea. Uh, so we got it ready to go. We had initially Kyle McLaughlin and Mary Louise Parker and uh, a company called October Films, and they said, okay, we're making a movie, three million bucks for the budget. We're going to go, you know, and I kept calling up saying, okay, you know, what's going on? They said, calm down. It was like on a Friday. On Monday, we'll put the money in the bank and we'll start making the movie. And on Monday, they called up and said, the whole deal's off. I was like, well, what are you talking about? They said, well, the guy who, who commissioned that screenplay that you got was screaming at our guy on the telephone. And the guy he was screaming at was going to write a $3 million check and it's not going to make the movie anymore. So it fell apart. <laughs> this is like the story of our life. And, yeah. <laughs> and we, we wander off and I, I can't think, we didn't do another movie. And it came back around where the William Morris agency said, you know what, we'll raise the money. Would you take a look at Luke Perry and, as, as the lead? And I, I, um, it, it's a funny story that they sent me a, cause they went to Blockbuster or whatever it was and rented a video cassette of his Luke Perry's rodeo movie and FedExed it to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I take this <laughs> rental movie over to John's house and go, look at this guy. And I had never seen 90210. Look at this guy. What do you think? And John goes, yeah, well, he could do it. I said, yeah, we'll put some big glasses on him. And you know, he, he's fine as a normal human being. He'll be great. And, and John got on the phone with Luke Perry, and they hit it off right away. So we went to make the movie, and the unions said, you don't have enough money to make this movie. So we were asking you, you know, and we had, we had to sit down with the unions and the Teamsters and all the, and the IA and said, look, we do not have enough money but we're sitting with you guys out of respect so you understand that we're not trying to go behind your backs, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came back to us and said, there's no filmmaking being, and there was, there was no filmmaking being done in Chicago at all. So they said, look, we'll make a deal with you. If you agree just to hire our union guys, because they'd, they'd ask us, don't hire any union people if you're not going to be making a union picture. They said, we'll, we will make a deal with you to keep our guys working. We'll give you better, much better rates. Um, so we said, fine. So we had the best film crew you could have in Chicago uh, making this little low-budget movie. Uh-huh. So that was like the second. So the, the first, you know, kissing it, the first thing was <laughs> here, the script comes over the transom of the movie I was trying to make and couldn't get the rights to. That shows up. And then William Morris says, look, we'll find you the money. Would you hire this actor? And we go, well, yeah, okay. And then they go, and by the way, we'll cost in this other actor. And we're going, who's that? And he said, Ashley Judd. And we had already tried to get Ashley in a different picture. So we were like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I guess we'll take her too. And, but the, the downside was we had no time. For a movie of that scope, we had no money. Um, so it was really brutal, and it was a, we shot it in the height of summer, and we were mostly, or half of it, you know, we're in asphalt parking lots. We're out there at uh-huh. 95 degrees every day. Uh, it's brutal to make. But be, because of that, because of all of those things, it, it's, my, it's my favorite project, and also because of how it ultimately, you know, how it turned out. And I used to, I, I tell people to this day, I would walk into these functions every now and then, these film industry functions, and there would be 
Roger Ebert sitting there. Now at this point, we had done, you know, Henry, which is which he really loved. That's where we, we met him at Telluride. Then we, we did him. We done Henry. He'd review that. We done the Borrower. He'd review that. We done Mad Dog and Glory. At this point, when I started seeing him a lot, we'd already done uh, Wild Things. We had all this this you know resume, and Ebert would always look at me and go, "Normal life." Now that was a great movie. <laughs> I was like, "Oh man!" <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It, it is a really good movie. Thank you very much. Um, was that a film that did festivals and things? I mean, because well, I it's, had... it's, it's, it's in the continuing story of our career. Uh-huh. Uh, so New Line put up half the money. I mean, this was this was peanuts to these companies. New Line put up half the money, which is a million and a half dollars, and and Spelling, who had nine hundred two one zero. I mean, Luke Perry mm-hmm. was a superstar at this point in time. We'd have to put up police barricades to keep the sixteen-year-old girls off the set. That's how, <laughs> how famous he was at that point. And so Spelling Entertainment, who had this TV show, they put up half the money. Uh, and it went to, we went to Sundance with it and, and showed it there. And I said to Bob Shea, who was the owner of New Line, or the president or whatever the heck his position was, it was his company, thanks so much for help, you know, helping us do this. He's like, oh, I'd do anything for Luke Perry. And then like the next day they said, well, by the way, we're not putting it out. We'll give it to Fine Line, which was their, their you know, little under company. Uh-huh. And the person that ran Fine Line said, no, nope, I passed on it when it was a screenplay. I don't want to put it out. So <laughs> we didn't get a theatrical release. And John put up such a stink in the press that they gave him a vanity release. They gave him a New York and an L.A. screening of it. That um, didn't do a theatrical re- release at all? No. Oh. No, other than other than the vanity release, no, it didn't. And but the what the interesting thing for me was, and a lesson for me was, that was when cable was just starting to take off as a vehicle for movies. And the first night they showed it on whatever it was, Showtime, millions of people saw it. Uh-huh. I was like, hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're not so concerned about getting your name in the movies on the uh-huh. screen. If you're making a movie so that people can see it, maybe this isn't the worst thing that happened to us, you know. And now it's, you know, now everything's done for everything. It's, you know, everybody I talk to now is talking about, well, I want to do a TV series. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this will work better as a movie series, a miniseries. Everybody you talk to wants to do a TV show now. You know, and movies, not so much. It's pretty interesting. I- I'm shocked that that movie though wouldn't have gotten a theatrical release. If at the very least, you know, it you know it has Luke Perry, then he. Oh, oh you know what? I left out, I'm sorry. I, le- I left out a <laughs> crucial part of this of this story about the theatrical on Normal Life. So, you know, you have recruited screenings test for test audiences, uh-huh. and the way they do it is they they stand outside a movie theater and they say, "How many of you would like to see a Seth Rogen movie?" Uh-huh. And they, you know, they get they get three or four hundred people, and then they put them in the theater and they show them the new Seth Rogen movie, right? Well, what they did for ours is, how many of you would like to see a Luke Perry movie from 90210? <laughs> and they recruited this audience in Oakland, California, who sat there and saw Luke blow his own brains out, and they hated the movie. The test scores <laughs> were, this is the worst movie ever made. Yeah, so I, I can understand. Help, 
Yeah, so that didn't help us get a theatrical <laughs> release. You know, it, it, it's just it was poorly marketed. And I can tell you, when we sat in with their marketing department, uh, they had they did not have a clue. They said, "Let's see, uh, Natural Born Killers." Uh, it's a kind of a Bonnie and Clyde thing. And I'm looking at this guy like, "Did you watch the movie? Did you did yeah. you see what this was? This was not two people on a rampage living the high life. It's just not any it has nothing to do with that." No, well, you know, and then they, when they shot the movie posters, they shot Luke with a big chrome pistol and Ashley half-naked lying on a motorcycle, you know? Yeah. They, they did not have a clue as to what the movie was that we made. Um, and I, so all of those things combined to us not getting a theatrical release. That must have been a huge disappointment. <laughs> that must have been like... It was. Such but, a you know, again, you know, if you, if you, you count back, so we had, we had, you know, Henry, which got an X rating, and they didn't, they didn't even put out for four years. And then we had the borrower that went out of business, so they didn't put it out. <laughs> and then we did <laughs> uh, Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll, and Avenue Entertainment, as we were doing that one. We got that one finished, and they went out of business. So they... they <laughs> They went. They were going to do a few, you know, five, six hundred screens, and they went down to maybe a seventy screen release. We just had this, you know, we were like the, uh, you know, the, the bad luck bears. Everything we did turned, turned, you know, t- went wrong. But we we kept at it. And the other, you know, the other side of it is we kept, I believe, um, and the, if you go and look at our reviews, we were doing good work. You yeah, know, we were, exactly. We were not. We were not we were not necessarily making anybody a big pile of money, but, but we were getting great reviews and we were getting uh, acknowledged as being good filmmakers. Um, so that sort of kept us going. Did um, filmmaking peers, like other directors and you know, writers and other producers who were making movies at the same time, were they coming to you and saying, Oh, we, you know, I ended up seeing Mad Dog and Glory, and I really liked it. Or, you know, were were peers of yours, even if they were maybe working in New York or Hollywood, saying we really like your movies? Yes, we we did. Yeah. I mean, we did get. Um, I mean, we got six Independent Spirit Award, Award nominations for Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for us, it was in the year where. Scorsese did the grifters. So his seven million or eight million dollar movie, you know, won all the awards. And to, I should also to sleep with anger, uh, Charles Burnett's picture that, that won some of them as well. We didn't win any awards, but we were nominated then. Um and over the years we um for example, before they did Silence of the Lambs, Jonathan Deming's producer said, Would you would you come talk to us? And we said, what about really? it? Said, well, we're, going to do a ser- we're going to do a serial killer movie. We just wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you know what you did, which I thought, you know, was a really, really kind of a, a neat thing. You know, and then they went and made Silence of the Lambs, which I was like, oh, these guys did a serial killer movie. I'm like, yeah, we did one. <laughs> we did one too. Hello. <laughs> but, um, and we became friends with, with, with those guys. So, yeah, we, over the years, we would, you know, um, I remember Stuart Gordon, who was a Chicago director who uh-huh. was like, he would tell me, you know, Mad Dog and Glory, that, that film will be around forever. It was so, so well done. Uh, um, so, we, you know, we would get acknowledgement from, from the industry. So, um, I, I will, of course, have to ask you about Wild Things, but um, Tanya Wexler, who, you yeah. know, ended up having a lot of success, you know, with her plays and, 
you know, going to Broadway and everything. But um, you know, what, Jeff, that, although I'm going to correct you though, so she did a thing called Hysteria, uh-huh. um, which was different than the play. It was so okay. Yeah, so she did the and then Hysteria was a, a relative well for for us indies it was a relatively big movie. It was in the twelve, fourteen million dollar range and it was uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and a group of Everett maybe. But anyway, yeah, I just but I just it's funny, I just had this conversation with someone else who was thinking that she had done the play as well. Um but Tanya was referred to me by a lawyer who's a, a family lawyer because she comes from the Wexler family and her Dad was a real estate billionaire back when a billionaire was meant you had a lot of money. <laughs> um, and and she was going to make her first movie, and in the typical way these things w- work, the, the cast that she had dropped out, so she couldn't get financing, so she was wealthy enough to be able to write the check herself to make her movie. Um, and she needed help since so she'd never made a movie, so I, I agreed to uh, to help produce it. What did you, what was it like working with her? Was that the first time that you'd actually produced for someone besides John as the director? Yeah, yeah, and it was, it was, uh, it was a little difficult in that with John, we already had a, a language and a dialogue and an understanding of of um, what our contribute our each our each our, of our contributions were, um, but if I if I'm trying to do the same job with a director other than John, they don't necessarily want or feel that they need my input, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, which is somewhat understandable, um, and that's sort of that's sort of something that's followed me throughout my career. I, I mean, I made a movie where Michael Keaton directed. And there were suggestions I made to him which would have really been in his best interest mm-hmm. uh, and which he he ignored because he, we, were, we were perfect strangers. You know, he showed up in Chicago and started making this movie. Um, and I think if he had had more time to see where I was coming from and what I, what my job really was, which was to get the best version of his movie on the screen possible, he might have he might have allowed me to collaborate a little more. I, you know, it's not I'm not in a position where I want to tell people what to do, right? But I'm in a position where I can say, hey, you know what? From my experience, this will work. This won't work. You don't need to shoot this stuff that you're planning on shooting. It will not be in the movie. That I can tell you because I've done this numerous times. That, that, those kind of things. Um, what I say to people who are first-time directors is there's a hat that you're going to put on it says director, and then it has a giant brain. You'll know everything about making movies. <laughs> and they put that hat on, and then I might as well be talking to myself. Right. Um, exactly. It's happened over and over again. Uh, so, so yeah, to answer your question, it, it, it was a little different with her. And she, uh, she's a brilliant woman. I mean, she's just a very, very smart person. So there were, there were times when I, where she'd say to me, yeah, I know I hired you to give me this advice, and now I'm going to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she, you know, and she, you know, that was her first movie, and she's, she's, uh, she did that hysteria, like I said, which is a much bigger picture. Oh, she did Ball in the House, which is her second movie. So mm-hmm. she's, uh, 
She's doing okay. She's getting along. That movie was filmed in, it wasn't filmed in New York, in Chicago. It was filmed in Texas? Uh, it was filmed in New York and Denton, Texas, yeah. I guess the question is, because if, if you were already sort of establishing yourself as a, you know, Chicago filmmaker and you had connections and everything, what was it about going to New York and Texas that made you kind of get involved as the producer? You know, because I would feel uh, like suddenly now being in well, Texas yeah. where you don't know anybody, it's a little weird. <laughs> well, 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 again, since I'm, the, uh, since I'm in theory, well, in her case, too, since she's the first-time director, she just needed somebody around to make sure that the uh-huh. that the production just in basic level was was going along and and things were getting done and things were getting done properly and um but also the movie was because it was set in it was set in new york and texas in, in the script um there was no getting around that and i needed to i needed to work when when you are a producer and you have a directing partner the directing partner is for one thing most likely to get paid a lot more money, uh, and <laughs> yeah. also because of that might not have to work for a few years. Whereas I needed to work more often. Mm-hmm. So when John would go, for example, John didn't make a movie between 2000 when we did uh, Speaking of Sex, and 2000 when was it 13 when we did um, The Harvest, and I made I think three or four movies in that time period. I mean, I would have been, in, in, would have been just in the poorhouse had I not <laughs> done other work. I mean, it's pretty basic. Um, so so I had not have any choice. I could have chosen, chosen not to do Finding North, but I needed, I needed to work. And it was a first-time director, and it's a very good uh, screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I Probably, have, no, probably, I have some issues with how it got realized. I mean, she was just learning. So there, there's some, and because of the financial aspects of it, I didn't do what I do on our movies, which is be there 24-7 for seven months. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I came and went on her movie. Uh, I do a week of prep and then do the first week of shooting and then come back later on for a later shooting and then pretty much the, I stayed out of the uh, editorial process. That's not like the movies I do uh, with John. We, we go all the way through the process. So, uh, you know, I, it, was a, it was a job I was happy to do for these reasons, to work with Tanya, who's, like I said, a very, very wonderful and smart person. And the screenplay was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it was, and it was work. Yeah. <laughs> that too. <laughs> Paying work, as they say. Didn't pay much, but it paid, so. Um, and then Wild Things, which is, even now, and I think it's kind of such a crazy movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I just have to, yeah, I mean, it feels much like normal life, where it's just this, it does not feel like it's the same, you know, through line of, you know, <laughs> You go, who's going to make this type of movie? And you're like, oh. right, right. <laughs> where did where did the movie originate from for you guys to get involved in it? It's funny, you know, in, in, in discussing this with you, it comes what it's, what you're what you're detecting is 
the tone, the tone uh-huh. of each of these pictures is completely different. Very. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and actually what happened between normal life and wild things was a, a period in time where John and I went our separate ways for a little bit. I think on normal life, we got to a point where he had enough directing experience that he didn't necessarily want to hear Steve Jones talking in his ear about everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and this went on set, in the editing room, uh, every, you know, the way we work is we do everything together. Uh, and we were at a point where I don't think he was feeling it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was the same way. So we were starting to have discussions in the editing room that were, were on the surface, I think, about the movie, but beneath the surface it was about, you know, we need, we need a break. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to, I think I went to the, to England to work on, uh, I was going to try to direct the movie. I was working with the people that make the James Bond movie with Barbara Broccoli. Uh-huh. And John, um, went, moved to the West coast and, and we truly, you know, we were people like, you know, obviously we'd, we'd talk every day to each other and, and you know, we'd make these movies. We'd be together for month after month after month ridiculous hours and ridiculous situations. And there was a period of time where we just didn't speak for, for a few months. Uh, we just needed to, to, you know, get some distance between us. So he got the script to normal, to, to, I'm sorry, to wild things. And it was kind of a cartoon. And he was able to get, uh, the studio to let one of our old compatriots, a guy named Ken Nunn, who's another great novelist, Ken did a rewrite of the of the movie, and when it came time to start production, sort of pretty much out of the blue because we hadn't been speaking very much, I got a call from John. He says, "I'm in Miami, and we're supposed to have another producer on this job, and the guy's not coming. And would you come down here and and work with me?" Again? And yeah. I said, "Yeah, of course I would." Um, so I sort of got on a plane and went to Miami and started making wild things. Um, it, we had to sort of have a discussion about our working method and what role we were each going to play. And we got that sorted out and made that crazy movie. And, you know, (laughs) for us, it was like kids in a candy store. We had... $31 $31 million. Yeah. We had a pile of, pile of movie stars. And Kevin Bacon was not as big a star as he was. He was a huge movie star at that point in time. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and Kevin Bacon and Bill Murray and uh, uh, RJ. And, I mean, it was just a, uh, you know, Nev Campbell, Matt Dillon. It was just a really great cast. And, it, and the, Kevin's version of the screenplay was just so nice and had so much depth. That really allowed us to uh, to have some fun. What did Bill Murray join um, the cast? Because he has a very small part in it. As almost a favor for you guys? No, I, well, I I don't think it's he doesn't not favor so much as <laughs> it's a little different than that. It's it's you say Bill, I want, I, and it will sound like a favor, but it's like Bill, we have this role, okay. Yeah, that's sort of what the discussions are like, you know. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like he's, he, if we had an ensemble, our ensemble is Bill Murray. 
Yeah. The one that's been, uh, it was Bill Murray and Tom Tolles, but Tom Tolles has sadly uh, passed away last year. Yeah. So those were our consistent, those are the guys who did more than one movie with us. You know, Bill's done three, and Tommy had done five or five of them or six of them or something. Um, and, um, so Bill's a guy yeah. we can we can say we've got this role we're trying to we're thinking you might want to do, and he go he'll go okay. <laughs> and I'll come and I'll just mail you know because I'm trying to think how how much time he even has in the movie. It's not very much. Um, no, no, Walt thinks no, and and he he's he's such a goofball that he doesn't communicate with anyone. So you, you, he has no agent. Uh, at that point, he still had an agent, but the agents would call me up and ask where he, where Bill was, and I'd be like, you know what? <laughs> You're his agent, and uh, he, he just, and he would, he would say, look, I'm going to be there, and to, and his word, honestly, you know, if you, you know, people are as good as their word. His word is is golden. If he says he's showing up, he shows up, and I had calls from uh, the studio saying. Look, we're putting thirty-one million dollars in this thing, and we we have to take your word that Bill Murray's showing up. I said, "What do you want me to tell you?" Because because you know they can't communicate with him. You know? <laughs> and I said, "I'm just telling you what Bill told me, and I know he's good for it," <laughs> which is kind of a weird weird position to be in. But that that was and and he would just turn up and do his job. Um, with that, Kevin Bacon was one of the producers of that movie. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, basically what happened was um, we were supposed to cast Downey Jr. He was supposed to play the Matt Dillon role. Uh-huh. But he had just come out of prison, basically, for drugs and weapons. Uh, he was in sad shape in those days. I, it's, it's really, he's such a uh, gifted individual. I was uh, sort of encouraging to see that he's, his whole life has turned around and yeah. I, I'd say, you know, who am I to say? So, well, I'm the guy that saw that he was in jail yeah. <laughs> like everybody else, and now he's not. So I, so I feel qualified to at least say that, you know, he's turned his life around. But at the point where they tried to hire him for wild things, had he been in a room where people were drinking and smoking pot or something, he would have gone right back to jail, not mm-hmm. to court. He would have gone back. So the studio was weary about hiring him, and ultimately they couldn't him because he was unwilling to accept uh, some of the burden of the insurance costs it was going to take to hire him. At least that's my perspective on it. <clears throat> so the movie almost fell apart because Bacon was like, well, I had planned on working with Downey Jr. and now he's not in it? I don't know. And the studio said, how about if he can be one of the executive producers? And, and Bacon said, yes, okay. Because, you know, that comes with more money. Right. Um, so his, his executive producer position was essentially a thank you for hanging with the project right. once Downey Jr. couldn't do the show. I mean, it's, it's funny with that movie because I feel like in terms of just the broader public who maybe don't know who's behind movies, it's arguably your and John's best-known movie because there's a certain certain notoriety about the movie in general, and people who haven't even seen the whole thing. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story. So my son, I take my son every year. We we try to go on a one or two diving trips. So we go somewhere, Belize or something like that. We get back to customs, and we're going through customs, and there's a big gruff 
giant of a guy sitting behind the, the, the desk at immigration. And he looks at he looks at our passports and he looks at my goes, filmmaker, huh? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, you make any films that I've ever seen? I said, uh, well, I made this movie that. Like, wild things, you did wild things. He got all excited. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you know? So I was like, oh, man. Well, that's the one that people are the most familiar with, for sure. Yeah. So did you go right from making wild things to doing Speaking of Sex, or was there any break, break no, for you? No, uh, Let's see, Wild Things was 97, and Speaking of Sex, well, 97, yeah, 97, 98, is that right? Yeah, and then Speaking of Sex was 2000. Mm-hmm. So there was, some, there was some more downtime there, yeah. And actually, I think in that period of time, I wrote a screenplay, got, actually got paid to rewrite a screenplay. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, really. At, at that point in time, it was, it was a good thing. And I know, John, and it's something else people don't understand about this business is you have to, uh, both producers and directors, you have to have seven or eight different projects in the works. Uh-huh. Screen, in a screenplay form or you've bought a book or you've done some options and you have things been written or rewritten and out there trying to find cast and nine times out of ten, nothing happens with any of them. So you're doing all of this work, you know, that, that is not paying you and you're, you're pushing them all up the hill until one of them finally catches on and you get to do the movie. So that's, that's what was happening between... Uh, between wild things and and speaking of sex, have you had a lot of projects that you just you know kind of tried to put through the system and just they they didn't kind of find traction? Um, Lots so you had to end up with yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's just part of the part of the the way it works. Um, you know, and then you then when you're in real downtime, like right now, um, we did the harvest. You know, it's almost three years ago now. You go back and you revisit them and say, well, this one might, maybe we should resurrect this one and take it out again. Yeah. Uh, so we have a movie called Carney Kill that we got invited to uh, Frontiers, uh, this, this sort of genre film festival up in Montreal last summer. And we did a presentation of, here's this movie we were trying to do, Carney Kill. And we presented it to a bunch of inter- international distributors and financiers and tried to get it started again, you know. Um, and we have a whole list of projects like that. John has a, a bunch that we're, you know, talking about together. We each have some other projects that are separate from each other. It's, it's, and you just keep churning them. For us, for the most part, the, the things we've had the most luck with have been the, the things we've done together. Mm-hmm. The films that you produced without John, you know, right. you know things with, like, people like Stephen Conrad, it looks like you are able to pull a lot from, you know, the Chicago um, theater um, companies. You know, a lot of the actors who were coming up in the theater ended up in those movies or who had been doing theater. Right. Are are you still pretty uh, friendly with a lot of the theaters in the city and kind of know, oh, this actor is going to, you know, be, be on the rise in a year or two, and they'd be good to have in the film. Uh, yeah, to, to a degree. I mean, part part of it is, yeah, just because um, you know the people we know and the people. I don't go to as much theater as I used to, mm-hmm. but um, 
but you you know in the in the circles of this, we, I still go to I still go to a lot of musical events and I go to art a lot of art art exhibitions and a little bit of theater and you know you hear what the talk is but also our casting directors here the local casting directors um, and we usually use uh, Pascal Rodnicki Jennifer uh, Rodnicki and Nikki Pascal they know everybody who's working. Uh-huh. So when we go in and we say, you know, we need a 40-year-old woman and it's a comedy, they're going to get, they are going to identify the best people in the in the city, and those people are going to be from the theater because that's that's you know our our you know we have that pool here, we have that reservoir of just great actors because we have a huge theater community and they're working all the time. Uh, yeah, I was thinking it was um. Speaking of sex, I think it was like you had Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally like right on the verge of both of them becoming really big names. Oh, yeah. In the, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was, it was, that, was, that was just crazy. That particular movie, um, we we had that this giant cast already. We had Spader and we had Jay Moore, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle, who we met when she was a little teenager when she still lived in Chicago. Um <laughs> And and we couldn't get Fox Searchlight to do it for seven and a half million dollars, and we got a French company to do it for eleven million dollars. <laughs> I mean, it just it, it, a lot of it doesn't make any sense. And then in typical fashion, the people underwriting the French movie company decided not to be in the movie business anymore. So the eleven million dollars that they spent was like, ah, you know, that's not what we do. We sell water. We don't have to really worry too much about that investment. So we didn't get the again. We didn't get the push that a lot of movies get. Uh huh. It's like the story of your career. You just keep yeah, yeah. And you know, we showed that movie here at the, at the uh, Chicago International, I think. And and the Hollywood Reporter review said Bill Murray should be nominated for the Academy Award for what he did in that movie. And that movie really pretty much never saw the light of day. It's a it's, it's a strange business. Yeah. I, um, I, I would think, is the promotion kind of besides Mad Dog and Glory and Wild Things, um, is the promotion kind of the movie that found the most um, broad appeal and had the biggest theatrical release of your film? Uh, let's see. Theatrical release-wise, they... Um, that, it probably was, but it wasn't that big a release. That's that's a movie where um, Bob Weinstein. Uh, we did it for Bob for the Weinstein Company, but it was Bob Weinstein who usually does genre pictures, uh-huh. screen and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he did Bad Santa. He does that kind of stuff. So we did this. You know, Steve Conrad, who's is a really a specific kind of guy, and specific has a specific kind of mindset and his writing is is really unique uh, to him alone I mean unique yeah <laughs> it's an oxymoron it's really unique way of doing things and when we finished the promotion and screened it for the first time Bob Weinstein said yeah what did, can I swear on this thing am I allowed yeah. to swear mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Weinstein says yeah it would have been a lot funnier with 30 more fucking jokes and Bob, Bob was imagining this movie, the promotion, as being his sideways, which is I still can't even 
wrap my head around that idea. But he was thinking this was going to be this art film, right? which would have been fine had he left it alone. But he decided that it wasn't funny enough and it needed 30 more jokes. And he said he was willing to spend the money to put the 30 more jokes in it. It changed the nature of the movie, for sure. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm not saying for better or for worse, but it changed the, the nature of, of the movie. Uh, and we showed it at South by Southwest, and the internet lit up with, oh, we all got to get behind this movie, it's so great. And the Weinstein Company, I don't know if it was a financial issue or what, uh, didn't promote it. No TV ads. <laughs> just, it just went, they just went dark on it. So it got, maybe went, was in 400 theaters for a week or something, and that was it. Yeah, it's I, funny. I, I, may, I may be the, maybe I'm the curse. <laughs> I, it's funny, though, because not, maybe that is one of those movies, though, that I even remember when it came out, people saying, like, oh, you got to go see this movie. It's so, you know, unusual, and, you know, it has such a specific voice. I didn't realize that it was such a short theatrical period, which maybe yeah, makes sense, yeah. but that that is so funny that it was such a, you know, it couldn't get... It could not get promoted. I mean, I think like you guys have the worst luck with distribution. <laughs> ah, yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. Like I said, we just keep we just keep banging them out. You know, yeah. you try to get the next one going, and and like I said, starting with Henry, you try to do the you know the best version of the movie that we can do. Um, yeah. And we also try, and I know I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking for John and for Steve Conrad as well. We're also trying to be, we're not thinking about um, a, making commercial movies. Mm-hmm. We want them to be commercial. You, you know, commercial is whatever sells. So, right. But, but we don't go into it thinking about, well, if we do this this way, it'll sell. You know, you, don't, you, you go into it, you're trying to make a movie a complete statement. You're not trying to pander. And I think we've all, you know, certainly speaking for those guys and certainly for Michael Keaton, we're just trying to do the best version of the story we can and then hope that it catches an audience. Um, it's a different kind of mindset from, you know, like I said, I teach producing at DePaul, and I, I say to them, look, I'm not knocking guys that want to go out and do uh, Spider-Man. That's a yeah. gigantic telling of a gigantic tale. It's a different kind. It's, it's a, a tentpole movie. It's done for a little bit different reasons than the, than the movies I tend to make. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's specifically engineered for, to, to try to be entertaining. You know, we're doing something that's a, a, we want to be entertaining, but we want to examine some other things as we go along. Because you come from the, the advertising world and you've seen how, you know, doing a really good commercial can make a big difference in how a product is perceived. Was it frustrating for you when you would have a good product and they would be mismarketing it or they didn't know how to sell it and it was, you know, you were like, they don't know how well, to reach could, the right audience. <laughs> yeah, well, I have, a, I have, a, I have a, a couple of good examples of that one. Um, I, am the, I am a very, very mild-mannered person. And I don't. I also am very calm. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the time. <laughs> and on Mad Dog and Glory, they said, "Okay, you know, we're going to take a few hours and we're going to do some still shoots for the for the movie poster." <clears throat> so 
I walk into the set and they have a very famous photographer. I'm not blaming him because I'm sure he was doing what the studio told him to do. But he had Bob and Uma and Bill Murray clowning. They were throwing money up in the air and they were laughing and they were gesticulating and they were like clowns. Uh-huh. And I, I lost my mind. And I was so <laughs> angry that Robert De Niro says to, to John McNaughton, what's up with him? What's wrong with him? <laughs> and John says, he looked at the photographs. He looked at them photographing him. And he says, they're making, turning you into clowns. And De Niro goes, thinks about it for a second. And he gets Bill. <clears throat> and they come into the trailer. And they call the studio up. And they go, we're not buying this crap. Send us another <laughs> photographer. So they send a fashion photographer. They spend a huge amount of money to get this really wonderful photographer to come and shoot these stills to placate us all. And then they don't use them. They use the clown pictures. Oh, so wow. you want to talk about being frustrated. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, and the same thing happened with, with, with normal life. Where they said, okay, we're going to do this photo shoot style. And then they pulled out the chrome pistol, which was not in the movie, and lay Luke and Ashley on the motorcycle. John and I got up and got in our cars and drove off. Because there was not anything we could do, and all we were going to do was be angry and, and, you know, do things that were unseemly. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, and, you know, what you get, even in the big movies, is you get uh, what's called the right to consult, Uh which means you allow, you know, in your contract, you have the right to consult on the marketing. You can walk in, they make their presentation, and you can tell them, this is the worst stuff I ever on my life, and they go, thank you for your consultation. Bye. And they'll do uh, the, have, they'll do the have, same thing they wanted. So you hope, you're hoping that you get respect for your views. When we did Wild Things, when we walked in that room and saw that they actually had some really good ideas, it was like, ah, what a relief, you know? <laughs> we, we finally look at the company that knows what movie we made, <laughs> and knows how to put it out. You know, it's, it's, it's really the, the one example where they, they, you know, we saw that poster with those girls' heads sticking out of the water. It's like, oh, geez, finally. You know? <laughs> That's great. But, you know, it, it, it's funny, though, because I remember even that movie was examples of if you mismarketed that, you could have gotten the completely wrong audience. You could have gotten... You know, the same thing with the Luke Perry thing, where you could have gotten all these kids who love, you know, Neb Campbell and the Screen movies, and they would have been very disappointed. They wouldn't have have gotten the joke, yeah. They wouldn't have gotten what that movie was all about, yeah. So the the film that you did, you know, after that sort of hiatus that you guys took um, with John. um, That was Wild Things, yeah. Yeah, and then you did... uh, Harvest. Am I right? Yeah, so harvest is. So I did. did uh, let's see. The actual sequence was. Um, speaking of sex, then drunk boat with uh, Malkovich and John Goodman. Uh-huh. And, and Dana Delaney, which is a Chicago movie. Then the promotion. Then the Merry Gentleman. Then the Harvest with John. What was it like coming back to work with John after you guys had both done other movies, worked with other filmmakers? Was it was the reunion sort of different that you guys realized, you know, what the value of working together could be? 
from my perspective, absolutely. I yeah. thought, you know, for me, for me, it was like getting back to somebody who I could say, Hey man, um, you know, maybe you ought to try it this way. And he would, he would not all the time, <laughs> but he would <laughs> say, Oh yeah. Okay. Let's, let's try that. Oh yeah. That'll work. Or, you know, it's a, you know, a symbiotic relationship, basically. There are things we both are able to contribute, which in the other movies, it was more of a, uh, uh, much more of a battle for me to get any of that stuff going. Um, so it was really a relief. And I think John, since he had not made a movie in quite a long period of time, he was a little more inclined to be accepting of, the collaboration process that we used to have. So the harvest is one where we were about, no, no, it was sort of like, you know, back to two guys, one brain again, which is what people <laughs> used to, you know, call us. Oh, the two guys with one brain, here they come. So it got more back to that. I mean, John is a, uh, as, as everybody can see, is a great director and really um, uh, unique and has his own perspective. Some of it, just due to who we are and how we've come up, I share a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I'm able to, he's able to go, speaking of sex was a great example of like, well, yeah, we've got uh, two weeks work left and one week to do it in. <laughs> he'll just point to me and go, he'll do all of, he'll do another, he'll do a week of it while we're shooting. And so I go up <laughs> in the helicopter and shoot the opening sequence. And I, you know, go on another stage and shoot all these insert shots because we he knows that it's going to be, it's going to fit seamlessly into the picture we're making because we're both making the same movie. Um, and on something like The Harvest, we, same thing, we put our noses to the grindstone. We, the, together, the two of us hire all of the creative department heads. So we, you know, we found Rachel Morrison, our cinematographer, our, our costumer, Stephanie Lewis. Um, we interview them together. We, we, go through their resumes and their, their work and, and uh, portfolios and, and collaborate on the hires of these people that are going to help us make the movie. Um, and choosing cast, I, I go into casting sessions. And again, it's not to take away from John's ability. He could do it himself. But we, from artistic standpoint, we've been successful in our enterprises when we work together. With The Harvest, um in um, 2013, someone like Michael Shannon was already, you know, building quite the career. But he yeah. was, of course, a Chicago actor and, come, yeah. you know, had come from theater and was a pretty loyal Chicago actor. Had you thought of hiring him before for other things? Or was it a case of suddenly this opportunity came up and he was just sort of perfect for the part? Because he is perfect for the part, even though it's a very <laughs> Expected part uh, for him it's, to play. It's, it's yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So I I, I had known him. Uh, I saw him in a play called Killer Joe. I don't know uh -huh. if he even yeah. I don't oh, know if he yeah. was teens yet. He might have been twenty. He yeah. was very young. <laughs> I remember riding on an elevator. I was elevator. I was going to lecture at Columbia College, and this big guy gets on the elevator. And he goes, "Mr. Jones." I look over. It's Michael Shannon, this kid that I'd seen in this play, and I'd been introduced <laughs> to him because. Um, one of my close friends' girlfriend was the was one of the leads in, in that first killer joke at uh, wherever that was in Northlight. Anyway, um, so and 
I run into Michael every now and then. And he's, I, we had a guy work for us who was a very close friend of Michael's. Uh, and when we went, when I went to do the married gentleman with Michael Keaton, uh, Shannon's career had just started to really take off. And I asked Michael, well, I said, Michael, we've got a part for a guy who's, who's Kelly, he plays Kelly McDonald's husband and he had abused her, but now he's found Jesus, but he's more like, you know, a crazed lunatic, um, who's, who, when he discovers, he finds Kelly McDonald, she's in fear for her life because this guy is just out of his mind. So I asked Michael Keaton to uh, read Michael Shannon. So Shannon came in and read the part, and Keaton says, well, you know, that's too intense. You're too intense. And Michael, being as good an actor as there is, did another reading where he completely changed his personality. And I was like, oh, man. This is, and, and, you know, I've seen Robert De Niro work. I've seen uh-huh. some really great actors work. So I, I, you know, if nothing else, I can tell when somebody's doing a pretty good job. And, yeah. and he went out and Michael Keaton went higher him. Didn't think he was right. And within six months of that, him, him not hiring Shannon, Shannon was nominated for the Academy Award for Revolutionary Road. Oh, my and, gosh. <laughs> And when I saw Michael Shannon next, he just looked at me and said, I thought I had that job. And I looked at him and I said, I would not have read you for that job. I said, I would never would have read you. I would have just given you the job. <laughs> if it was up to me, you would have, you would have, I would have just sent you the script. You would have done the job. He said, yeah, I know. He goes, I ran into Keaton, blah, 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 later on and had a conversation. And I said, yeah, well, so, but I'm, I'm, you know, he's a, there's a great actor. So, what ultimately happened was um, there were two producers in New York on the harvest, and I was not involved initially. Uh, I was involved in that they had sent the script years ago to John, and it wasn't any good. So John and I and, and the writer, uh, Steve Lancelotti, sat down and we gave him notes and instruction on how to make this into a better screenplay. And then he went away, and it took a couple of years for him to put this movie together one of the two producers in New York had some kind of a relationship with Michael's manager. And they said, we're going to get this, this script to Michael Shannon. And John said, who was attached? I was, again, I was not attached to the project. John said to me, could you just let Michael know that we sent him the script? Because when you don't have money and you offer a job to an actor, their agent does not have to give it to them. Right. If you're not offering them an actual job with money attached, the agent just goes, you know, I'm sorry, he doesn't read stuff that's not set up. And they're, it's, they're allowed. If you offer them a job and you have the money, they have to give it to their client. Right. So John says, they're offering it to Michael, and we didn't have any money. Um, would you just let him know? So I call up Michael, and I leave a message on his machine. and go, hey, man, it's Steve. I'm, this is, I'm not on this project, but John McNaughton just wants you to know that a script has been sent to you. And the following week, Michael, Michael was in. He said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Uh, but then the money came from a fluke where John was going to do another movie and it fell apart and one of the financiers took a liking to John. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. He said, what else do you got? Since this picture we were going to do fell apart. And John said, I got this thing to harvest. 
<clears throat> and uh, got to say, okay, I'll, I'll put some money into that. Well, ultimately, the guy wrote a $6.2 million check. Um, but the, the, the New York, there was problems in the production with the way the money was being spent. And the, the, the guy who was going to put the money said, you know, I don't know that I'll do this. And John says, well, what do you want? And he goes, well, where's your partner? Where's the guy that, that you work with? How come all of this stuff is so loosey-goosey here in New York? And John said, well, they won't hire him, you know? They don't want a partner. <laughs> and I don't blame him. If I was making a movie and you said to me, oh, you got to take this other guy in, I'd go, get out of here. Well, the guy said, yeah, but you're not getting the money. They're not getting the money for the movie unless this all gets straightened out. So, you, you know, you're going to have to see if your partner wants to do this. So I flew into New York. These... I don't want to make them sound like bad people. They weren't, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't set up my plane ticket. They wouldn't set up my hotel. They were tr- hoping I would just go away. Uh-huh. And I finally had to sit them down and say, "Look, I'm not here to take your movie away from you. I'm here to 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 make sure you get it made." And um, so then we made the harvest. And ultimately, the movie did get taken away from them, but not by me. Uh, the financier bought them out because he just got tired of them. With no. The Harvest um, actually did get, you know, a, a festival release, and you know, it got good reviews. But um, am I right that it ended up doing sort of the VOD approach? Um, uh, it got a, yeah, it got a tiny theatrical reviews for release from IFC, but, uh-huh. but they, put, they mainly bought it for uh, the VOD. Having had all those issues with distribution, you know, after making a good movie and then having the movie, you know, not come out or not come out the right way, right. how do you feel about the VOD market now for indie films? Um, I think it's great. I think, you know, there's, unfortunately for us, we <laughs> we have all these crazy things happen, and The Harvest was the one where we, we made the movie and then had to figure out what to do with it. Uh-huh. You know, and I said to the financier early on, and I, as I've explained in this, you know, in talking with you, so I'm not, I'm not a guy that finds the money and sets them up and gets into the whole distribution process. I'm a guy that make. And and when we got to the end, of the, I said to the financier, "Look, I got to tell you, I don't know how to sell a movie. That's not, that's not my area of expertise." And the guy says, "Well, neither do I. I you know, I sell vitamins, so together we'll figure it out." So, so we got the harvest done, and then we went out and shopped it. We went to distributors, and and finally, you know, it ended up at IFC. We went to agencies and distributors, and and I, I sort of got educated at my advanced age and how these things get done. Um, you know, VOD, it's harvest is made, I, whether it's returned its initial investment, I couldn't say because I'm not in the chain of of uh, revenue and documents, but. The last I heard, it was making good money uh, from, yeah, and, from you know, digital platform. And people could actually find it, which is the other big thing. Because, you know, you, yeah. I mean, if, if something just comes out and you don't know about it, you know, <laughs> it's like it could right. be great, but you never know that it's available to see. Right. It ended up it ended up on Netflix, and it ended up, uh, I think, when it was initially released, it was, the, it was on iTunes. It was one of the biggest horror movies for for a few weeks. It was number one. So it was, yeah, it, it did all right. When you're not working as, you know, a, a full-time producer on things, 
how did you get into teaching? And um, you uh, teach at DePaul? Yeah, I teach at the, the uh, School of Cinematic Arts at DePaul. Um, I teach main, primarily producing the feature film and uh, the masters. I, I advise a lot of their masters in fine arts students. I also occasionally teach a, a, a music video class. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way I got into it was I, a guy that used to work for John and I as a PA, I think uh, probably a normal life. He went off and started a little teeny film school at DePaul with, you know, a couple of video cameras and 40 people. And it grew to, there's over a thousand students in the school now. And it's got floor after floor and facilities. And it's got a giant shooting stage down at Cinespace. And it's a big time film school. Um, but about six or seven years ago, the guy that started the film school, who had worked for us, a guy named Matt Irvine, um, said, would you come in and think about teaching a class? And I said, yeah, sure, I, I'll, I'll give it a thought. <laughs> and <laughs> I taught one class. It was, it, was, it was interesting. It was fun. In, the, the, in that particular first class, where there were a bunch of serious, hardcore filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, so it made the whole experience really good for me uh, in that I was, you know, I, these guys, they weren't students who were just passing the time. They were, no, no, we need to know. We need to know. What do you know? We need to know it. You know, to this day, I'm, uh, today I'm dealing with these guys. They're now about to shoot their own, one of their own projects. You know, they're, they're seven years out of school and they're still talking to me because, you know, I'm, I've become friends with them and we'll probably do some business together. Um, so that, uh, that just got me into where I would go in when I'm not working on a film, I will, I will go in and I'll teach these producing class. I became part of the full-time faculty. They created a position for me called producer in residence. So I'm like, you know, an old man, they'll, they'll drag me out and say, look kids, here's, <laughs> he's still alive. Now that you've, you know, had the experience, had the, you know, the good stuff come out and the bad and the, you know, mm-hmm. the trouble with the things like distribution and production right. troubles. First of all, what are your feelings about, you know, staying in Chicago and kind of pursuing the pursuing film from that area? You know, because there were times where I'm assuming you could have just gone and done the Hollywood thing and, and tried to pursue mm-hmm. it from there. Yeah, there's a couple, I mean, there's a couple um, facets of that. One is, by the time, uh, by the time Henry came out and by the time we started to get some real buzz, um, I was already almost 40. So, the, uh, and I had, I had already moved once to Los Angeles back when I was a rock and roll musician. So, the, the idea of, moving to Los Angeles and becoming a, a movie guy along with everybody else that was doing, you know, uh, more mainstream pictures didn't have the same kind of appeal that would have to a younger, to a younger person. And I was mm-hmm. starting to get into where I wanted to have a family and I didn't want to raise them in, in Los Angeles. I mean, I had initially thought when we did Henry and, and, um, Bogosian's picture and stuff like that, that if we were going to go anywhere, we would have gone to New York than in the New York film world. It's, you know, a more arty approach to things. Um, 
But I also sort of, because of our experience where we just went out and made this picture on our own, not as a part of an industry or a part of a culture or anything, we just went out and made Henry, we just went out and made it. It, it caused me to, and I don't want to speak for John, but it caused me to think, you know, you can do this anywhere. I mean, and, and everybody runs out to, where am I going to, to Hollywood to make movies? It's like, well, they don't make them in Hollywood. I mean, they really don't. Mm-hmm. They make them all over the country. They make them all over the world. The business gets done in Hollywood. And distribution up until recently was done in Hollywood, but now with this digital distribution, that can be done anywhere as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, the perception is you got to go to Hollywood to make movies. The reality is I made a movie in Calgary, I made a movie <laughs> in Miami, made a movie in New York and in Texas. In Chicago, I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's, it's, the productions are everywhere but Hollywood. Um, so the, so the, the business, their offices are there. And okay, you do your meetings and you get your money and then you're going to go make the movie somewhere else. Um, so for me, you know, and, and when I, and I, and of course I have students all the time who are getting ready to go to the West Coast and they have, uh, DePaul has what they call the LA quarter where you go out and you get, you know, maybe you intern at a, at a production company or some movie related industry. And it's, it's still, it's Hollywood. I'm out there in Hollywood. Um, and it's iconic more than it is Mm -hmm. necessary, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, we have cine stage down here. I don't know, we've got 20 or 30 sound stages. Now we have facilities here to, to make movies. What we don't have is the infrastructure where there's somebody financing 10, 15, 20 movies like the studios do, uh, which would keep writers here and would keep keep a lot more creative people here because they'd, they'd have a place to work. They end up going to the West Coast because that's where they'll pay the writers, for example. Um, and that, But I always use an example. Kevin Bacon was making a movie here years ago, and he called me up and said, hey, man, come on down and say hi. You probably know the guys that are financing this movie. And I go, uh, no, who are they? He goes, oh, they got this company. Well, they have a West Coast company, but it's funded by Chicago Money. <laughs> but they'd rather go out and have a film company than the, you know, because that's Hollywood. You, oh, no, right. you're, 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 you know, your, your sign, your shingle hangs out in Hollywood. Even though you're going to come back here with the money from here <laughs> and make the movies here. They were called artisan. It's like, to me, I was like, man, that's just this infuriating, you know? Yeah. Because you think, how much money did it cost for that transaction to happen that they could have spent on the movies if they just kept the money here and done it here? And I'm sure their argument would have been, yeah, but the distribution companies are all on the West Coast at that point in time, or, or East or West Coast. Uh, so, you know, again, I think that there's, there's, it still comes down to, making a film and it geographically does it sort of doesn't really matter except you need a crew. So you need a town where there's, there's a working, you know, working film community, which of course we have here. And it's right now it's booming. Um, we've seen it boom and bust. I think this is like the third cycle mm-hmm. where we had lots and lots of television and a bunch of movies coming in and then it just dries up. And I'm hoping that, this time around, they've really gotten over the hump, and, and uh, it won't ever go to where it just dies completely again. 
Well, and um, now it's the, now it's the situation where there are TV shows that are sort of set up to film in Chicago, or they're you know right. filming in the suburbs of Chicago. And in right. a way, I get the sense from people I speak to that it has forced these production companies and you know the the networks and things to set up more of an infrastructure because if you have you know you're not just coming and going for the filming you're staying and coming back season after season so (laughs) it saves them a little bit of money to actually be kind of centered in chicago and have production offices and things like that so oddly i think tv has helped Oh, no, it certainly has helped. And, and you know, because Dick Wolf has got, what is it, five different shows running here at once, and then there's Empire mm-hmm. running here. Uh, and then now Steve Conrad's doing a, a series for Amazon here mm-hmm. called The Patriot. Um, and, you know, it's, it's where now, and, of course, you know, as we, we discussed, the line is blurring between what's a movie and what's television. You know, all these great shows, you know, series on on what used to be called television, but it's HBO and Showtime and all that, they're, you know, they're sort of like really just long movies in a way. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, because they, well, because they don't have advertising like, like network TV does. So it's a, it's a different, you know, they can be more risque. They can be, you know, they can be more violent. They can be, have more sex. They can do all of these things that used to be just in the movies because you couldn't show that stuff on TV. So the again the line blurs a little bit, but there is a bit of a danger in in the fact that there are so many um, network TV shows being done here that are just called Chicago this Chicago that because right. the day they the day they're not getting the numbers they need they may just go away and unless there's yeah. another Dick Wolf or there's somebody else who's got something else in mind that can be done here, it, it could cause a little bit of, uh, you know, a downturn in, in the industry. So hopefully there's enough momentum right now that there'll be people saying, well, yeah, we can still use these facilities. We have all these other great ideas. It would really be, and I've been, I've been spouting this for 20 years now, be really great if there's a Chicago-based entity that was developing projects. Mm-hmm. That, you know that we weren't relying on the West Coast or the East Coast to to bring the shows here. That the shows weren't being brought here; they were being initiated here. Well, um, and this will this will probably have to be the last question. But when it comes to the students who you're working with, you know, either mm-hmm. potential producers, potential directors, are you seeing that they're taking that same interest in? They go, oh, I grew up in a small town in Illinois, or I grew up in the city of Chicago, and I I, I relate to this area, or I want to use those areas that I'm familiar with and I like. Are you seeing that they're saying they want to develop things that they can make and stay in, you know, the the areas that they are from? Yeah, I I, I found that um, in particular as a student, a woman in. Uh, Angie Gaffney, and she she started an incubator down at Cinespace that's trying to do just that. They're trying to get uh, you know bring the financial and creative communities together to uh, you know to have a Chicago-based film industry. Uh, it's just in its 
it's early stages. Um, but that's that's something that's come from you know people out of film school who are not who are saying, well, no, wait, there's a there's a way to exploit that here as opposed to um, you know going somewhere else and then and then maybe coming back. Right. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm you know I'm sort of that's sort of encouraging if you can if you can really get it to go. Um, I we have to wrap up, and it was such an incredible pleasure to talk to you. I you know you had great you know experience and stories, and it was so fun to talk about all your you know all your adventures making these movies. Um, I know that you have one project that you're kind of um, in in the pre-production period of called Chicago Hack with a Chicago artist. Um, can you give me just a little right. bit about what that is? Uh, yeah. Um, although, yeah, I was, I, I was going to, I just, I just remembered. So the, <laughs> the, my former student, Angie, Angie Gaffney's, she started something called stage 18, which is, that's the incubator for uh, trying to get Chicago uh, based financing and, and, you know, development here. Um, but that said, yeah, the Chicago hack is, um, there's a, a guy named Dimitri, uh, Samuroff, who's, who wrote a book called Chicago hack, but Dimitri is an, a painter, uh, an artist, but he's also, a, uh, he, he was a cab driver and he's a, he's really a great writer. So he would write these, these little, um, scenes that would involve, whoever was in the backseat of his cab. So it'd be like, well, I picked this woman up and her laundry and her kids, and I took them to this laundromat, and it's a, there's these slices of life. Uh, so he wrote a whole book of these little short stories about, and not, not fictional, um, uh-huh. nonfiction, about these different uh, customers in his cab. But then he would illustrate them with his little paintings. <clears throat> um, while he was doing that, he picked up a, one day he picked up an artist named Tony Fitzpatrick, who's, you know, Chicago's most famous artist at this point in time. Uh-huh. And, to, and art being not just doing the paintings, art is also self-promotion. And Tony would sit Dimitri down and say, kid, always not a kid, here's what you got to do. You have to have a, you have to have a social media presence. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to make yourself known. If you want to sell your paintings, people have to know who you are. They have to know your work. And Tony would hammer him on this. Uh, and he put Dimitri on retainer to drive him whenever he wanted to go someplace. Cause Tony doesn't drive. He would say, he would just call him up. So you're on retainer. You drive. So here's aside from the, little slices of life vignettes happening in his back seat. Here's a story about a guy who came from Russia, uh, schooled in America, went to art school. He's driving a cab. He's starving as an artist, and he picks up the most famous artist in the city who's, who's uh, opening up the art world to him. And to uh-huh. me, that was just fascinating. Uh, and that's the, that's the basic premise of the Chicago Hack TV series we're trying to do. Oh, that would be so cool. I I would definitely want to watch that. That would be awesome. <laughs> I you know, that, they, that just sounds like know, a great show. <laughs> when they do just, when they do, you know, Chicago Fire and Chicago Medical and, and again I I'm not dismissing them anyway. It sounded like I was being man. The 
You know, they've got, okay, they got the fire, and they have medical, they have this. Nobody that I have seen in, in not just Chicago in general has done a show that's about the art world and what goes into that. And it's, a, it's a fascinating world. I mean, if a guy can take uh, a shark and put him in a, uh, put him in a chunk of, formal, uh, of a tank of formaldehyde or a big giant block, block of plastic and get $5 million for it, yeah. which is what happens, you know, with the, what's his name, Damien Hirsch or Jeff Coons, where you do a 10-story tall version of a balloon animal and they get $40 million for it. There's something weird going on there. Yeah, you know, there, exactly. There's, there's a whole discussion to be had about what is art and what is perception and what is marketing and what you know and what is talent that that nobody's ever nobody's ever examined on in a TV show. So for me, it's really uh, something to do, but I think it could be pretty interesting. And just the dichotomy of the art world and the you know the cab driver world. You know, I think that those yeah, two things yeah, are really sure. interesting. Definitely, sure. I I would definitely want to see that. So I hope that it gets. You know, okay, that's, you know, that's you guys, you got one customer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just keep just keep throwing that pitch out there. It's it's a pretty good one. <laughs> um, but thank you so so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and giving me your time tonight. And I'd like to thank again our guest, Stephen A. Jones, for sharing his fascinating insights and great stories about his career in films. You can contact the show on our show website, which is part of the podcast network, The Second Wind Collective. And make sure to check out their other great podcasts, such as Bad at Movies and Ladies in Comedy. I'm your host, Leslie Coffin, and thank you for listening to From Lakeshore Drive to Hollywood. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.